0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, August 3rd. 3rd, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Kara Santa Maria. And this week, I want to thank the top patrons from last month. They include Mary Neva, Michael Gaucher, Brian Holden, Charles Payette, David J.E. Smith, Dudas Infinitas, Ulrika Hagman, Pasquale Gelati, Daniel Lang, Christopher Pitts, and June Sapara. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you want to hear your name at the top, or you just want to learn more about how you can support Talk Nerdy, visit patreon.com slash Talk Nerdy. There you can pledge your support. You can also go to talknerdymerch.com and pick up some cool swag. All right, guys, this is going to be a really exciting episode. I had the opportunity to sit down with um, a professor of anthropology and the director of the Historic Preservation Program at the University of Nevada, Reno. Her name is Dr. Carolyn White. And her most recent book, guys, this is really fascinating, is called The Archaeology of Burning Man, The Rise and Fall of Black Rock City. So yeah, we're going to talk about the archaeology of Burning Man. Without any further ado, here she is, Dr. Carolyn White. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So your book has to be one of the most interesting kind of conceptual books, um, the most interesting research projects that I've seen come across my desk for sure. And I'm sure you get this all the time. But I have been doing this show now for like seven years. And I've interviewed a ton of different scientists and um, kind of academic experts in their fields. And never have we talked about Burning Man.
1: Oh, well, I'm happy to hear that it's something a little out of the ordinary.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So I myself am not a burner. I've never been to Burning Man, but I live in Los Angeles. And so I have a ton of friends that go to Burning Man every year. And they come from a lot of different walks of life. I hear a lot of different kinds of stories about the experience. But my assumption is that not everybody listening to the show knows what Burning Man is. So mm-hmm. maybe we could start with just a brief overview of like, what is Burning Man on the whole?
1: Sure. Um, well, Burning Man is, of course, it's so many different things, but essentially it is an event that happens every year with the exception of this year uh, mm-hmm. up in the, on the Black Rock Desert Playa. And it's a city of... It's a temporary city that's built each year and about 70,000 people go to this city to experience various things. Uh, People go to Burning Man for different reasons, but when they get there, what they find is a city that's laid out for them to find a place to camp in it. And it is a place that is very organized in some ways and very chaotic in others. But it is a place that's kind of free of dogma, so people go to have the experience that they want to have. But there are certain themes about the, the Burning Man itself, like a placement of art. Of course, a giant man is burned, and that's the culmination of the
0: festival of
1: the event. Um,
0: and not a real man, by the way.
1: <laughs> no, a wooden man. Yes, a giant forty-foot wooden man is burned. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's kind of a hard, hard thing to describe to people that don't know anything about it, because in many ways it seems like a festival like any other, but it's not really celebrating anything. It's, it's kind of an event that people return to year after year, but it has its own particular form and um, kind of its own ethos and its own aesthetic.
0: Right. And so you are an archaeologist, and you've been going to Burning Man, or at least been studying Burning Man for like a decade at this point. What made you think that, I don't know, it's it's interesting, because a lot of times when we think about archaeology, we think of like ancient sites. Mm-hmm. And so where did your interest sort of arise in looking at an active, ever-changing site? And then specifically, why pick Burning Man?
2: Yeah, well,
1: I'm always very interested in how people live. I am trained as a traditional archaeologist, um, you know, one that excavates archaeological sites in squares. But the kind of archaeology that I've always done has been of the fairly recent past. So from kind of 18th century up to the 1950s. And within those archaeological sites, I've Always been curious about daily life um, and the ways that people live on a regular basis, those sort of mundane tasks that people do, and what the material form of those worlds looked like. Um, And when I moved out west to Nevada, uh, I started thinking about how to use some of these same ideas about looking at the everyday life of the past uh, further up towards the present. And when I visited Black Rock City in 2006, I thought that Burning Man would be an opportunity to look at those things that I had been studying in the past and see it in the present. Um, At first, I thought it was useful just because Burning Man is a giant temporary city. But as I started to do the research more and more, I realized that this kind of active site archaeology could be applied to many different places, but Burning Man has a lot of things that, are, that really make it ripe for this kind of research. Um, so it was a, a happy marriage of opportunity and an amazing place to study.
0: Right. And and is there something intrinsically interesting about the concept of Burning Man? So obviously you're studying the site as an archaeologist, but the site is a uh, Black Rock City is representative of the activities that happen there. The ethos of the the individuals, you know, the the sort of trek that they're making there each year to have some sort of um, for many of them, what they would consider an existential or a, um Transcendental, like a really intense experience. So, was there something that about the actual Burning Man concept that drew you to it?
1: Um, I would love to say that that was (laughs) part of what pulled me to it. But in many ways, I think that was something that I was less interested in Mm -hmm. about Burning Man to begin with. I mean, I had heard about Burning Man from my brother in law who had attended. Uh, for a number of years back when I lived on the East Coast. And it, and I say this in the book, it was something that did not appeal to me whatsoever. Um, but then when I started to become familiar with that landscape, I was actually working on a Depression era mining site that is right nearby. And a colleague that I worked with from the Bureau of Land Management mentioned when things started to get really dusty on our project, that it was probably dust that was being kicked up by the people setting up for Burning Man. And then I realized, Oh my gosh, I'm so close to this place. I should check it out. And when I visited Burning Man and Black Rock City for the first time with Dave Valentine, that, that, uh, Bureau of Land Management archeologist, I was really Mm. surprised at the gap between what I expected to see and what I did see. And all of those sort of fanciful stories about people's um, getting away from it all or uh, having, like you say, these transformative personal experiences, that was present. But what was also particularly striking to me was within this you know, do what you want, radical radical self-reliance, you know, seeing what you can get away with in the desert, that was juxtaposed to this extraordinary structure that was immediately visible in terms of the way the city was laid out and the way that this kind of undercurrent of organization ran through every component of the city. And
0: right. Interesting. Yeah, so that's
1: what pulled me to it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's almost this kind of, I don't know, from what I've gathered just talking to individuals who I know who have gone and who it's really spoken to, it's almost this like strangely anti-capitalist or post-capitalist place where people can go and there's a barter system and money doesn't mean anything and you build your own um, campsite and, you know, you participate and it almost seems like you said a bit anarchistic or a bit like, it's supposed to lack any sort of rules or structure, but ultimately, mm-hmm. the only reason it works is because it's actually pretty highly organized, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's an organization that is uh, it's kind of antithetical to authority. I mean, it embraces its mm. anti-authoritarian quality. But at the same time, you've got buy-in from 70,000 people to follow not rules, but Principles and Mm -hmm. um, those 10 principles are have been very successful, I think, in kind of guiding the way the city works. Um, One, which you mentioned, is this idea of radical self reliance that you have to come to Burning Man with everything that you need and everything that you're going to anticipate needing and giving away, and that makes. A huge difference um, in, in how people kind of conduct themselves in the city. They're not expecting someone to take care of them.
0: Right. And so, I mean, that really brings me to what I first thought of when I thought about you doing archaeological work in a site where at one point in time, there's 70,000 people making it their home. And then, you know, within the blink of an eye, it's an empty uh, playa in the middle of the desert. The idea here is very similar to the idea that you see in our National Park Service, which is, you know, take only um photos and leave only footprints like garbage in garbage out do not leave your stuff behind keep this place clean do you find that generally speaking that is how people operate
1: yes um for the most part uh mm-hmm. yeah burning man is uh one of the 10 principles is leave no trace and for an archaeologist it's That is our worst nightmare because (laughs) (laughs) we rely on people leaving traces, uh, leaving things behind. We study their trash. Um, But at Burning Man, that has some very interesting ramifications. Um, For the most part, the leave no trace ethos is embraced by people. They call uh, trash at Burning Man moop, matter out of place. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's an anthropological term coined by Mary Douglas. And uh, basically, if you are someone who leaves a lot of trash behind, you are a mooper, and that is a big insult. Um, Mm -hmm. And there is a big uh, cleanup at the very end of Burning Man where the entire city is scoured by a follow-up cleanup crew, and they create a big moop map where they rank every inch of the city um, green, yellow, or red. And if your site was clean, you get green. If it was eh, somewhere between, you get a yellow. And if it was very dirty when you you left that area, you get red. And since there are known inhabitants in a lot of the city because of the placement of theme camps, um, if your theme camp gets a red, then you're in big trouble and you probably won't be allowed to get placed um, and get an early spot the following year. So it's something that people take very seriously. Usually each camp has um, dedicated time for people to gather any trash that they may have dropped or may have blown into their area. Um, so it's, it is something that people do really value as critical to allowing the event to keep going. That being said... But- There are still things that are left behind, of course, Um, and that those things are collected by the playa restoration crew during the months after Burning Man is over, during that big cleanup.
0: And are those the things that then translate for you as an archaeologist to um, artifacts?
1: Well, yes and no. Um, One of the things that I've done, I've, I've. Participated in the cleanup with the Playa Restoration Crew. I've talked to those folks a lot. They do an incredible job. And at the very end, after the that crew has done their work, the Bureau of Land Management does a big inspection and they place a bunch of random points all around the city and collect anything within, you know, a 10-foot radius around those particular points. And Burning Man has to meet a certain standard, um, no more than one square foot of trash for each acre, basically. And so those objects are collected and Burning Man has passed that exam with flying colors every year. But one thing that does happen to those artifacts at the end is that they send them to me for analysis Um, but, and so I have all of those materials in my lab. It is not very much stuff at all. It fits in a, like a small postal box each year. But one of the things that the kind of work that I've done at Burning Man through this active site archaeology is realize what the gap is between what they, what is collected and what I can observe when I'm there at the site. So Mm -hmm. My work takes place mostly while people are living there and looking at the places where people live and how they build their structures, talking to them a little bit about some of the decisions they make about their camps, but observing those spaces um, through an archaeological lens of mapping and photography. And what is left behind is representative of a lot of the things that I see um, but it also to me, reveals some of the shortcomings of archaeology in fully understanding the past because although archaeological methods are the best tools that we have to understand the past, they are also they they fall short. So I think that it is incumbent upon us as archaeologists to really try to think creatively about how we understand those things that are left behind and really think about the space between what we find and what could have been there and think a little bit more widely. And that's one of the things that studying Black Rock City has really made me think about is the space between those things.
0: Right, because these artifacts themselves are just simply a fraction of what was. It's a similar issue in paleontology where only like a you know a percentage of a percentage of things will ever actually be preserved and so then millions of years later utilizing that as sort of an index of everything that ever was is it's wildly i don't know i don't want to say biased but it's like it's obviously not representative of the global whole
1: exactly and it can't it it can't be, um, but I think sometimes uh, people have this idea that archaeology is directly uncovering the ways that people lived. And that is a misunderstanding, I think, by the general public, but also a lot of archaeologists get very focused on the things that are left behind and forget to think about the this, the gaps, those big gaps about what is not preserved, or how how things are changed over the course of time. And also that um, we have this myth or um, kind of miside- misconception of the past through the, you know the so-called Pompeii promise, you know, that that these are worlds that are frozen in time and we're just simply uncovering them. But mm. all the sites, for the most part, unless you're working at a place like Pompeii, which there are just not that many of those. Um, yeah,
0: there's um, Pompeii. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you can throw in Herculaneum with that, I guess. <laughs> but but all of the sites that we look at are abandoned. And um, were, uh, people left those places for specific reasons. So we're really seeing the aftermath of of the way people live rather than the ways that they were in action
0: yeah it's interesting like it, it seems like a really important tool to be able to actively observe and then maybe cross reference your observations with some of the sort of post hoc analyses like the the artifacts that you find after the fact um is it a type of approach to archaeology that is well received by your colleagues? Is it a field that you see more people kind of finding interest in?
1: Um, well, yes, I think yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. There's the this kind of work draws on different ideas that have been around in archaeology for a long time. One of them is called ethnoarchaeology or experimental archaeology, where people do modern experiments to kind of think about the kinds of materials that are found in the past. For example, uh, making stone tools and using them to... um, uh, in practice, and see how the projectile points might break on impact, or things like that, or making pottery to understand the, the modes of production, and that's been happening for a very long time in archaeology to really to give us tools to understand the material world that we're finding. Uh, at the same time, using archaeology in the present um, on a site that people are actively living in has Mm -hmm. long been thought to be the realm of cultural anthropology rather than archaeology. And I think that the kind of archaeology that I do certainly draws on cultural anthropology as well. And that's an important influence. But to me, it's more, it's the same thing that I do when I'm looking at a site from, you know, 19, 50 or 1850 thinking about a site that people are are using on a daily basis. And so that work falls in the realm of contemporary archaeology which has gotten a bit of traction in the last 10 years or so but it's that is a very new field.
0: Right, you know, something that strikes me and and oftentimes I'm drawing parallels with my my own work and my own interests and my specialty now, um, it was neuroscience, but now it's clinical psychology. And one of the things we often talk about when we're talking about psychotherapy is sort of the difference between content and process. So the difference between like what is said, like the content of a conversation and the process, like what are some of the processes that underlie that content? And it, it makes me wonder, you know, based on the conversation that we've had so far. Um, How much of your work really is the content, like the artifacts, the findings, the the reportable, you know, data and how much of it really is this process, this kind of new approach or maybe hybrid approach that is helping you fill in some of those spaces in between the data?
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, comparison because I think that archaeology always has to kind of live in both of those worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, All of the articles, all of the reports, all of the summaries of the work that we do has to have a methods section to describe what we've done and how we have done it. And um, a lot of archaeological work is... Methods-based. I mean, you can be trained as a specialist in um, geographic information systems, for example, um, that is has an archaeological application, or do, being a faunal analyst, which has to do more than more with that particular technique than with a set of ideas that you're um, looking to understand, mm-hmm. and. At the same time, all of those modes are producing information and they produce different kinds of information depending on what you're asking of your data. So I think that with contemporary archaeology and a project like this, um, I think that the development of this field of active site archaeology is, to me, uh, supersedes the content of Burning Man itself right at the same time the the particularities of burning man make it such a great place to kind of apply this perspective for the you know the first time at a overarching site that that it's just kind of a perfect mesh of both of those elements
0: And so, speaking of those particularities, I mean, I think something that really strikes me, even when you first look at your book, the actual publication, is this breathtaking photo on the cover of sort of like an aerial drone or maybe helicopter view of Black Rock City in action. And it, I mean, it looks like a sort of Mayan or Aztec civilization. It has this like spoke like organization to it. There are these makeshift roads, it's so pulled back that the individual encampments are little dots, and they're they're organized in these in these uh concentric circles. I didn't realize that I kind of expected burning man to just be like this I don't know pile of people well, yeah <laughs> but this like a big bananas, nest. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but this is so clean looking,
1: yes, it's true, and those aerial shots are amazing. Um, there is an airport at Burning Man. So that there are a number of aerial shots that happen each year by people going up in the planes, um, as well as some interesting drone stuff and Google earth Mm -hmm. images. Um, but yeah, the city itself has been this organized, um, since 1998 was the first year that the city was designed. And some of that comes out of. A problem that happened at Burning Man that you're imagining of the kind of big mess on the playa of people every which way. Right. Uh, back in 1996, was this a big shift when they had to start instituting some rules when the city reached about 8,000 people. Um, so a fellow named Rod Garrett. Uh, designed the city and developed it as this concept of a clock with the city reaching from two o'clock to 11 o'clock, you know, through six o'clock and Mm -hmm. designing those roads, um, the roads as spokes or the hands of a clock and then these concentric roads. And amazingly that form has been able to accommodate the growth of the city Um, Through these years with not all that much change, but the city itself is the very first thing that happens when um, the Burning Man organization kind of starts to think about moving on to the playa. They, They create the center point. They figure out where the boundaries will be. They start laying out the roads and all of that is very clearly laid out. And then the city itself is filled in on the inside.
0: And so, is there, you know, I don't know, a pecking order? How do you know where you get to slot in and set up your individual camp?
1: Uh, yeah, there are. There is a kind of zoning. If you are a mm-hmm. member of a big theme camp or village, uh, you can apply to be to get placed. That's what it's called, getting placed. And you have to fill out a request that includes what, what you'll be giving back to the community, how many people you'll be, um, what the theme is, et cetera. And if you get placed, then you will be told by the Burning Man organization where in the city your camp will be. So, for mm-hmm. example, I have camped with the Alternative Energy Zone Village for many years. Shout out to them. They are a wonderfully organized city that has um, a theme of, well, you guessed it, alternative energy, (laughs) Uh, which essentially means that there's no generators are allowed in the village. Um, And so each year, Several months before Burning Man starts, we will be told where the placement is, and then the mayor of of the city starts to figure out within that big block city block is how big that camp the the village is where the individual camps will be. So there's kind of this secondary um, organization of that, but then that happens for many many theme camps, and there's a kind of zoning with quieter camps in the center of the city around, you know, kind of between four and or five and seven o'clock, basically at the kind of bottom of the city. And then the louder camps, like the dance camps or sound camps are at the edges at 11 o'clock and at two o'clock. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's how those camps get placed. And then after that, it's first come first serve. So you can camp where there's a space open.
0: Oh, I didn't realize. So yeah, yeah, there's always I, I hear about like the big long queue as people are kind of waiting to get in. So they're driving, you know, from all these different urban areas generally, to go to this place in the middle of the desert, and they have to leave early so that they can, you know, find their space. Yes. Um, it's
1: kind of a, a, people call it a land grab. That's why right. <laughs> yeah, it's a privilege to get your placement. So you don't have to stress out about
0: that. Gotcha. You know, I'm really interested in through the field work that you've done, what kinds of maybe new understandings or um, Or what kinds of areas you've been able to maybe debunk some misconceptions about Burning Man? I I, I guess I would start with saying that I think probably one of the biggest misconceptions, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, is this idea that it's a sort of anarchistic society. But even beyond that, that people just go there to do drugs. Like, I think that's a common thing that people think when they think about Burning Man is like, oh, it's like this crazy party in the desert where everybody's just really trashed.
1: Yes, I think that's definitely what most people think about as, as what Mm -hmm. happens at Burning Man. And the reality of being there is very different. I mean, one of the things about it to remember is just its sheer size. It is 70 to 75,000 people who are gathered there. And so Burning Man is not one place. It's a, it is the size of a city of a small city. And so you can see, you can see kind of whatever you want to see there. Yeah, sure. There are some mm-hmm. people that are interested in um, the in dancing all night and um, taking drugs in various ways, but that is not the overwhelming feeling at all of being at Burning Man. Um, there are so many camps that give different kinds of activities away. So from pancake breakfasts to, uh, yoga classes, to contact improv and dance camps, to, um, religious ceremonies of every, every possible stripe. Um, Mm -hmm. and there are also many camps that are kind of interested in experimental ideas on the playa, whether it's developing 3d printers or, um, uh, different kinds of an alternative energy uh, experiments. And there's also um, a real sort of s- spiritual side of Burning Man that is interesting in terms of what people kind of get out of that exper- experience. Um, one of the things, places that I think is really interesting is the temple. And mm-hmm. the temple is placed at... 12 o'clock in the the clock-shaped city. And that's a place where people go and um, for kind of quiet, peaceful times, um, people bring offerings and leave them at the temple. People write things on the temple walls. And then at the very end of Burning Man, that structure is burned also. So it is in striking contrast to the idea of Burning Man being this big no-rules party. And those kinds of of things, those kind of quiet uh, hanging out in the neighborhood ethos is, I think, more prevalent than the, the kind of party scene, though both are present for sure.
0: Right. And it does seem like even amongst the people that I've spoken to who spend time in Burning Man because of maybe the excitement of the, um, like you mentioned, the party scene, um, in addition to the people who are going for a more like contemplative sort of get away from the rat race, like re myself Um reason there does seem to be you're right this spirituality that runs through it like even in those who go to and they take drugs and they have fun it does seem like psychedelic drugs seem to be the more popular drugs Mm -hmm. at a place like burning man for that reason right Right. that there's a an elevation or some sort of like spiritual component to it that's really important to people
1: yeah and i think the the place of burning man contributes to that too um it's it's Kind of getting out of your comfort zone in various ways or living, like you were, you've been saying, this kind of alternative life for a week. And that extends to, you know, that people wear costumes or kind of wacky clothing. And the landscape itself is so otherworldly. I mean, it's in this very massive, flat former lake bed. And so you're kind of, nowhere at the same time that you're in this city that is, um, full of, you know, bright lights and fire and flashing, flashing signs and, and strange buildings, um, and art that you can climb on. So all of those components are, are kind of dovetail together in, in the experience of being there.
0: And you talk about, you know, the place itself, the site being this interesting sort of flat riverbed. It's quite barren. It's in the middle of the desert. You know, I often think of it as being maybe a little bit of an oppressive area in terms of like the heat, in terms of the dust. I'm wondering, um, I'm not really sure even how to ask this question because there's so many components to it. But Oftentimes we think about historical archaeology and anthropology, and we think about the far reaches of the planet where our own ancestors decided to venture out, right? We know that we all originate in sort of the belt of life in Africa and ultimately chose, um, had an interest, or maybe were forced to venture out to these new places. And I often wonder, and I think it's not an uncommon thing to wonder, like, why did people go there you know that place seems hard to live like why would you end up in you know Siberia or why would you end up at the equator or in the middle of the desert um, and I think of Burning man as this area that's like not conducive to life um, I'm wondering how how that uh, plays into some of the research that you've been doing
1: Oh that's such an interesting question because there are so many answers to this, <laughs> uh, I will start by saying how the reason how it got there to begin with um, is kind of connected to this idea of it being as far away from everything. And it, it initially, when Burning Man started, it was it, the first years that a man was raised a wooden man was raised and burned happened in San Francisco. Um, And that event started out with uh, Larry Harvey and his friend, Jerry James, and they just got together, went to Baker beach, dragged this big wooden man, also a wooden dog. I mean, it could be called burning dog. Um, (laughs) And they burned a man and a bunch of people kind of came together and it was this spectacle and, community and, and all, all of those things together. So they started to do it again. And then a, a organization, and I use that term very loosely, called the Cacophony Society got involved with the Baker Beach Burning Man. And they okay. started to publicize it. And then when Burning Man got shut down by the police in 1990... And the Cacophony Society was interested in doing these alternate zone trips. And they had heard about the Black Rock Desert. So they invited the Larry Harvey and Jerry James to kind of move Burning Man. It wasn't really anything organized at that point from San Francisco mm-hmm. to this really otherworldly place where you could get away with anything. You could shoot stuff. You could blow things up. So this getting away from it all was absolutely critical to its formation. Um, But one of the things that also strikes me about this place is, you know, I got involved with archaeology out in the Black Rock Desert through the more traditional kinds of archaeology. I've been studying um, Depression-era mining camps that are in existence just to the east of the playa and studying an important site that was part of the Oregon and California trails that's Hmm. just west of the playa. And those were also terrible places for people. Um, And especially at the site that's just, it's just a stone's throw from where Black Rock City is built every year. There are diary entries from people who had to cross the, the playa um, and they talk about the, the miles in that area being the longest ones they've ever seen.
2: And right. that it's
1: an awful, gloomy place. And all of these terrible stories about crossing this, this barren land with no water, no grass, no nothing. Um, so it's been a place of remote challenge for, for many years.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, uh, you know, it's completely understandable. Let's get out of our normal cities and our dwellings and our air conditioning and our high heels and let's go to a place that's undeveloped and a place that's as far away from home. That's still, I guess, convenient to home, but (laughs) there is something very strange about the idea of like, let's go someplace where it's just uncomfortable Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then try and make it comfortable within the confines and constraints of only being there for a week and then needing to be able to tear down everything we build up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, people also really embrace that challenge, um, of what, of still, you know what you can get away with there. I don't mm-hmm. think you know the these massive, massive bonfires would not be possible in a place that has um, trees nearby.
0: <laughs> for, right, you know there yeah. are no trees for miles
1: and miles and miles. Um, don't do
0: that, in Southern California. Or, yeah, exactly. the forest. Uh, <laughs> the forest exactly. is going to come after you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, But also that kind of stark, the starkness of the environment means that color and um, massive building takes on a very different life out there than it Mm. does when you have a a backdrop that has a little bit more um, visual interest. You know, I think that, and we've certainly seen this in recent years with you know Instagram and and Facebook and other social media, where it's just a very photogenic scene to have someone right. walking around in their um, you know fake fur top and their massive moonwalker boots and their um, headdress or whatever it is that they've they've costumed themselves with, um, that the the backdrop is so neutral and and nothing that it makes all of these things kind of stand out and and that definitely contributes to the i think the way that it can be satisfying to be in such an unfamiliar place
0: yeah, you're right. It's got it's almost like a, a strange post apocalyptic cyberpunk kind of Mad Max yes. um aesthetic to it that I think is really attractive to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, and some camps really build on that. There is a Thunderdome at Burning mm. Man that happens every year where you can battle your friend in uh, a showdown, you know, out of <laughs> out of Mad Max the movie. So um there's there's People are really interested in, in those things. I think also as far as um, you know, what people build, it's a it's a very flat, spacious area, so you can you can take up space and build things um, at a scale that you just can't in other places.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 And the elements are different there. So. So you. You're working within a different kind of creative constraint, which is, I think, a fun challenge for a lot of people, especially those that have more of that kind of engineering um, uh, interest. It's. It's definitely one of these things where you know, as an archaeologist, Burning Man and Black Rock City as a whole. I could only assume must inform you in a very special way about what it is to be a modern human, right? We can study active societies, um, we can study Eastern societies, Western societies across the globe and try to understand more about the way that we live and the way that we interact and relationships and individuality and all of the things that anthropologists really focus on. But this is kind of a strange, almost like pseudo artificial, temporary microcosm of at least a United States sort of Western, um, aesthetic or Western society. You know, how does that translate for you? What are some of these very important, I think, human takeaways that, um, that you've been able to publish about over the years?
1: Um, there are so many things at Burning Man that, that, relate to this question. Um, one mm-hmm. of the things that I think has been most interesting is just thinking about domestic space and how people choose to build their homes. Um, most people today, they move into a house and make, make it their own in whatever ways. And that, and that's interesting to me too, but at Black Rock, in Black Rock city, every home that is constructed there. Is developed from scratch at the beginning of of Burning Man, um, and there you really see what people's priorities are. Um, one of the things that I am interested in is the way that people uh, kind of create public space and create private space in their homes, and at Burning Man that's really visible in some interesting ways. So, um, I think one of the Things that's so fascinating is the way that those that spaces can be used for multiple things. Um, We often think about space as having, you know, a very finite set of functions, and Mm -hmm. no one. And now that everyone works from home, we know that that is not true. Um, that, that dining room table has many functions, and dining may be the least important one of
2: all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but at Burning Man, public and private is executed in fascinating ways. Um, you know, we have this idea of Burning Man as being so open and free, and and you know, you can do whatever you want, but I I have found that those distinctions between what is public and what is private are in fact quite rigid at Burning Man. So people have their private space that no one is invited into, um, but they also have a public public space that is very public. So those um, spaces really live at opposite ends of a continuum and it takes a different form in different kinds of at different kinds of camps. But that's one of the things that I've really focused on in looking at how people live is where that private space starts, where the public space is, and how public is their private space? How private is their public space? And that's different from one camp to another. There are also interesting ways, I think, that people interact with their environment that mm-hmm. um, this is another interesting example of the way people live within the rules that they are given. Um, you know, as we've talked about, people have to bring out all of their own trash. Um, nothing is allowed to be left on the playa. Um, you're not even allowed to pour gray water onto the playa. So people have all kinds of creative ways of addressing those issues. Um, so whether it's laying out all of the food waste to dry and get desiccated and not smelly at all so that when they pack it back in their car, they're not, it's not terribly unpleasant, um, to uh, different mechanisms to evaporate water, um, and those kinds of things. And the, the centrality or not within the camp is also something that is, is variable and consistent. And this is what anthropologists do, right, is we like to see the ways that people act individually, but we also see the ways that they are acting collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing I think it, that, that working at Burning Man has revealed um, in terms of the way that people live their daily lives is kind of is the centrality of human waste and its impact on how people live and how they settle. Um, one of the structuring components at Burning Man is the porta potty. And in fact, for a while, there was a rumor going around that Burning Man couldn't get any bigger because it already used all the porta potties that were available.
2: Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education too. <laughs> That's not true, but
1: <laughs> but it kind of <laughs> indicates how important that is. And the banks of porta-potties are one of the key things that are laid out when the city is mapped onto the playa at the very beginning. And people camp in relationship to those porta-potties. You know, you you want to be upwind. You want to be not too far, not too close, and those kinds right. of ways that – that human waste really dictates how we live.
0: Oh, yeah, that's so interesting between like solid waste, liquid waste, our trash, exactly how we deal with these things. I mean, it it really reminds me of being a child in some of these um, courses that I was lucky enough to be involved in like a really good gifted and talented program as a child. And we would compete in all these different things like Odyssey of the Mind and future problem solvers. And there were these big organized events where um, we would be faced with trying to solve big world problems. And I think a common theme that we would see is, you know, if we were to create some sort of um, colony or, or um, civilization, you know, move some sort of civilization into space, how do you deal with these kinds of issues? Like, making waste? What do you do with it? I mean, these are obviously some of the issues that most plague us on planet Earth, uh, pollution, water usage, um, uh, you know, what to do with things that don't biodegrade and things that we can't uh, really readily recycle. And of course, again, Burning Man is a microcosm of that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I Burning Man gets a bit of a pass, too, because it is only one week. So the solution often is the same solutions that we have ultimately, which is, well, you carry your trash out and go throw it in a dumpster somewhere right. outside of the city. But it does expose, I think, the the centrality of some of those issues that feel on a daily basis to us like they're more marginal, um, that we know that landfill landfills are a problem but in a world of privilege one isn't face to face with them very often and burning man exposes how those issue i mean if you had to live at burning man for a longer period of time it would get much much messier and it's mm-hmm. sort of the the Stressors are relieved very quickly at Burning Man, but you can see the ways that they also would build if you were needed to stay there much longer,
0: yeah, it's interesting like this idea that when we're living in our homes we often just throw things away as if there was an away it's mm-hmm. like we put it in a magic box and then it gets you know hauled away by magic people who come in the middle of the night um whereas in Burning Man, you are You know, that box is not magic. You are that person, at least temporarily. But probably something that I would be, you know, personally really interested is the encampments where that is their main focus. Like their focus is, like you mentioned, using green energy or renewables, or their focus is being a completely trashless society. So like Mm -hmm. we will not use anything that cannot be reused into something else. Like that's a really cool challenge that I think is, um, at the top of a lot of people who go to Burning Man's minds.
1: Yeah, I think that is true for a lot of people. And I think the, the reverse is also true that it is Mm -hmm. also a place of tremendous waste where where it is, uh, an example of, um, and I, one of the things that I think about Burning Man is it's this, you know, burning of excess, in our culture. I mean, there's things are literally burned that are, that don't need to be burned. It's sort of Mm -hmm. for fun and for symbolic value. And in fact, one of the things that you can do at Burning Man is rather if you have things that are burnable, you can burn them rather than recycle them or reuse them. So, um, I think that, that, you know, the opposite of, This truth is also a truth, that it is a place where you sort of see that uh, uh, creativity in dealing with human waste and its impact on settlements. And you see the ways that we are uh, interested in ignoring those problems and kind of relishing waste and um, superfluity in our worlds.
0: Absolutely. As if, as if just lighting something on fire really does make it vanish. But ultimately, as we know, you know, it's a massive source of pollution. Um, And that's another kind of archaeological, um, I guess, artifact, you could say, is that you can see the results of this burning, can't you?
1: Well, yeah, that's an interesting um, thing also, because one of the ways One of the issues at Burning Man from the beginning is how do you protect the playa from these events that are so hot? (laughs) And originally Mm -hmm. it was basically creating like fired clay underneath the burns. But now they they have a pretty sophisticated system of digging out underneath where all of the big burns will happen. And they put in this degraded gravel underneath that serves as a uh, buffer between the very, very hot fire and the playa itself. So archaeologically, we would see evidence of that because it would be different kinds of soils if this place were to be excavated you know, in however mm-hmm. many years. Um, but it is far less damaging to the playa itself than it used to be by, create, by digging these holes and putting the, the degraded gravel in there. And that also allows, like, there's a lot of, there are networks of cables and um, wires that that are part of these massive burns so that the fireworks and the different pyrotechnics can happen before the man is burned.
0: Right. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like a, an iterative kind of improvement, but then, of course, that, that, um, causes us to ask that question of like, what is progress and what is improvement? You know, if we become better at one thing in an effort to solve a problem, does that not create a completely new problem that Mm -hmm. now we have to solve? Um, It's such an interesting idea. I mean, it's such a really cool way for you to be doing your academic work and for us to be able to learn more about ourselves really through through the work that you do, and i'm I'm just really grateful that you were able to um, take the time today with to share with us um, some of your findings and some of the insights that you've gathered. And of course, um, your book obviously houses many more, the Archaeology of Burning Man, The Rise and Fall of Black Rock City. Is there anything, Carolyn, that we didn't really touch on that you think um, you know we, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, if we didn't mention?
1: Well, I think one thing about Burning Man that I'll just add here at the end of a a very enjoyable conversation is um, one thing that I have come away from this project with, it is understanding that Burning Man, it gives me an opportunity to see a city and its cyclicality, you know, how it's set up, how people live in it, how they take it down. And it's an amazing place because it's temporary and that it is this massive city that exists for only one week each year. Um, mm-hmm. But it has also really exposed to me the ways that Burning Man and Black Rock City are also just the same as everywhere else, that we're all living in these temporary structures um, that are just a little bit less temporary than burning man in right. one way or
0: another yeah you know, if you really like zoom out yeah. and look at it from a different time scale you're so right
1: yeah so we're so burning man allows me to see these spaces and really has informed the ways that I see the world and other active sites that I've moved on to study as well um, it's it's kind of all the same thing it's just happens at a, at, at a different speed and that, you know, some places are more temporary than others.
0: Yeah. And that's ultimately, I think, one of those great things that you hear sometimes from sort of astronauts who are up in the ISS and they talk about the cosmic perspective. And, you know, the more that you really talk to anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists across the board is, you know, there's so much variability amongst us, but also the commonalities are are really breathtaking. And it really reminds me of a quote from this movie that I used to love as a kid called SLC Punk, um, where the the guys are bemoaning the fact that they've never left Salt Lake City and they just want to travel. And they have this kind of rich, older friend who's been places before. And he's finally like, what do you think is out there? It's just people and cars and houses. Like, <laughs> it's a little different, but it's all pretty much the same. And it's, you know, in many ways, that's a really profound statement. I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think it could be applied to Burning Man as well. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So, Carolyn, you know, I always close my episode by asking my guests the same two questions. And as an archaeologist and as somebody who has um, such interesting um, research of foci, I'm I'm definitely um, fascinated to hear your responses to these kind of big picture questions. Okay. All right. So I want you to think about the future. I know you spend a lot of time thinking about the past, but also in relation to the future um, and the present. So this time I want you to think about the future and you can think about it in whatever context is relevant to you right now. You know, this could be um, the future of yourself, your family, your work, or maybe something a little more global, you know, American society, the the world as a whole. Um, and I want you to think about um, number one. What is the thing that really does keep you up the most at night, the thing you're most concerned about, maybe frustrated by, um, I don't know, uh, pessimistic about, potentially even cynical about? But then on the flip side of that, so we can kind of end on a positive note, I'd love to know what is it that you're genuinely, authentically optimistic about? What are you looking forward to?
1: Well, those are very good questions. And there are, well, gosh, so many in each category. I don't know which category has more. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm like, pick one. (laughs) (laughs) I think
0: that's easy. I
1: I guess I will say that I, at this moment, I mean, this is a very particular moment in time, Mm -hmm. um, not that other moments aren't, but um, I think that the uh, I'm going to pick the same thing that that makes my blood run cold and gives me some optimism. And I would say that the attention to the Black Lives Matter movement at this point mm-hmm. in time um, has me extremely upset and also optimistic. Um, as a white person of great privilege, I think that that people that I – deal with on a regular basis have finally woken up to some things that we've seen, you know, for many, many years now. Um, and that is the, the pervasiveness of that is very disturbing. The Mm. lack of movement in within that movement up till now is very disturbing, but at the same time, I am encouraged that perhaps it will, finally make people make some changes. Um, And so I I guess I am equal parts optimistic and pessimistic about that right now. So I am hopeful and very cynical at the same time. So I'm not going to leave you on a totally positive note, because I think that positivity about that makes for complacency. Absolutely. But I have seen people who... I never thought would say the words, you know, systemic racism, saying those words. And that that gives me some hope.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been um, like there's like that cautious optimism when you actually do see policy change as a d- direct result of collective community action. And when you actually do start to see sort of an awareness that individual privilege prevented for so long and But the fear is that the systems are so strong and the actual um, kind of concerted effort to repress or maintain those systems uh, has a lot of power, right? Governmental power right now. And so the fear is that without the momentum, um, this just falls back into that complacent place. Um, And so... I don't know. There is, there is a hope that I have as well, seeing that the movement hasn't died, seeing that even in superficial things like my social media feeds, um, the the hashtag is trending every single day and i'm seeing people posting continuously and that um that does bring me a bit of hope and you know i think sometimes the idea that this is a generational it requires generational change um sadly that it just doesn't happen fast enough but i'm very hopeful about even my generation of people in their 30s but then when i look at people in their 20s and and people in their teens i'm just oh, i'm i'm so incredibly hopeful by how much more aware of LGBTQIA issues, of you know, uh trans lives of yes. of ethnic minorities and the the horrific kind of um yeah, systemic racism that they faced and just brutality that they face. The fact that these kids, they just they know it in their bones. Yeah. And they see the injustice, I think is um that to me is what's super, super hopeful. So I'm right yep. there with you. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Yes. Yes. Well, Carolyn, this was a really fascinating chat on a topic that I can, I can, I think, very um, confidently say I never thought I would be talking about, especially not to somebody who is um, an academic. So I am really (laughs) grateful that you brought this to, to my attention and to the attention of everybody listening today.
1: Well, it's been really fun to talk to you about it.
0: Absolutely. And everybody listening, hey guys, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy.
2: Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter.